0: Oh, yay. Oh, yay. oh The judicial yay. power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there's any more questions, we have to find an argument in this case. All right. persons having business before the Honorable the Supreme Court of the United
1: States are admonished to give their attention.
0: Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dan Epps. And I'm Will Bode. So it's been a little while, Will. This is our first episode of the new year. 2024, an election year. We are recording this on January 8th, so off by two days of the anniversary of a extremely significant historical event. If you remember what I'm talking about, that's going to be relevant to what we're going to be talking about today, which is the thing that happened at the Capitol, January 6th. Uh, I don't want to describe it them. using a noun yet because that's going to be relevant to what we're going to talk about. Do you remember Will? You were the person that like told me that was happening.
1: I don't remember that. I, I, remember I was. Happening.
0: I was like in my office, not really paying attention to stuff, and I got a text from you, and I, and you were you were like extremely, you know, concerned about it. You were extremely uh, thought it was extremely bad.
1: I I mean, I believe I was watching the electoral count process at the time to see how it when disrupted. it when it happened, the feed cut out. Well, yeah, it was I was not. You know, Paying close like attention. What happened? What happened to my Congress? Where did they go? Oh, the protesters have breached the Capitol.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting because I, I feel like I don't remember the, our precise conversations, but I feel like maybe like before the election, I had sort of like expressed like general concern about what was going to happen, whether there would be kind of a peaceful transfer of power. And I don't want to, you know, it's been a long time, so I don't want to uh, try to put words in your mouth. But I, I think that you were sort of like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And then if anything, like you were like more concerned about what was happening at the Capitol than I was, maybe because I had priced in the chance of something like this happening. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, that could be. I mean, it's been a long time and I've done a lot of thinking with the sense it's hard for me to reconstruct everything. I do remember, I do remember after the election, somebody, not a lawyer, uh, asking me sort of, okay, is it, I think it was after the, you know, the newspapers called the election for Biden like a day later. Uh, asking me, okay, so is this it are we you know is it settled and I remember saying, well, you know a funny thing is it's not really clear when it's settled there's this day that the electors are going to meet and it'll be a lot more settled after that and then there's this day the votes are counted in Congress so it'll be more settled after that but really until noon on January 20th you know it won't be totally settled and then
0: and I mean by which you didn't mean to imply that that was a good thing um, yeah, just, descriptively just, that's yeah yeah just just keeping that. Right. You know, possibility open. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to that quite extensively today because I think we're going to finally give the people what they want, which is an episode about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, on which you are, I think, can probably say one of the nation's leading co experts. Is that fair? With my co author, Michael stokes Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there there are you know other folks who've written about Section Three uh, who might try to assert their own expertise, but uh, I think you all have written at the very least a very long article about Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and certainly the most downloaded article on Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh-huh. At 100 plus downloads on SSRN and counting, your argument, which you're going to walk us through a little bit today, but basically is, you know, there's a bunch of steps in the argument, but it is that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualifies President Trump from assuming the presidency, among other things, has, you know, other meaning Is it fair? Yes. Okay. Listeners at home can't. See the video, but I said that, and then you like made a weird face.
1: Whenever you say something and say, "Is that your view?" I usually am looking for a trap, but I think this time no, there's you no were... trap
0: here. There's no trap. I'm not. I'm not interested in trapping you because I think that this is, you know, this is your time to shine, right? To really kind of say a little bit more about your piece. You released your piece into the wild. I don't know two months ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. August. Oh, has it been out there for that long? Okay, a while ago. Who can say when it was? And. I think it's fair to say this has had a tremendous impact. Now, before we get too deep into it, though, should we like circle back to any Supreme Court news, or should we just go into this?
1: I feel compelled to at least uh, apologize to the many, many, many listeners we have who wrote in about non-mutual defensive collateral estoppel, <laughs> possibly the most emailed-about topic on the show since you and I forgot that Justice Brandeis is from Kentucky. I'll just say we had an interesting discussion about this in the last episode, skipped over an important case called Blonder-Tongue Labs versus the University of Illinois Foundation, which discusses a form of offensive non-mutual issue preclusion, like where one person has a patent and goes around trying to enforce it against a lot of people. It still has this idea that it's like the person who's litigating all the cases is the person things can be held against. It's still asymmetric, but it's important. Skipped over it, might have implied it didn't exist. Sorry about that exciting to know that that was like right in the wheelhouse of our of our listeners that that's the kind of thing that really gets people going
0: so. yeah i guess when we were recording it i didn't necessarily think that you were saying the broader thing that some people seemed to think that you said i thought it was something something other than that but something narrower than that but uh, clearly if you say something that causes six people to write in then maybe we need to be clearer next time yeah, it's good. It's good people are listening. So anything else? The Chief Justice released his annual report since we last recorded, he releases those on New Year's Eve. And they always have a fun, fun little historical anecdote. Yeah. This one was kind of a jaunt through the history of the use of technology in the United States courts
1: mm-hmm.
0: and sort of suggesting, hey, AI is a thing now. Maybe that will affect us in some way, but probably not going to really change things that much or it it's not going to like make judges go away We'll have to figure out how to use it and we're aware of it and that's really all there is to say yeah this one did this one feel like more phoned into you than some of them?
1: Uh, a little I mean I think it's a great topic and I actually I basically agree with it I do think I don't know people were expecting something different but then, then that's always how they work is people are always expecting you know this is the year the chief is going to say something controversial and
0: they never do so sometimes he like makes a pitch for digital salaries sure you know i mean this this one i thought was unusually particularly anodyne it kind of had a feel of you know gosh it's (laughs) mid-december i don't have a topic for these yet what are people interested in i don't know ai that's a thing right we talk, I feel like every third faculty lunch I'm at, we talk
1: about AI. I wouldn't be surprised if the court talks about AI a lot. Like, it's just like a, you know, something they all talk about.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I'm looking back. The one last year was about protecting judges from threats and violence. It's a little bit more controversial. The audience all thinks we should protect judges, but it was kind of intervening in kind of, you know, ordinary politics, given stuff that's happened the last couple of years. The, you know... Arguably, attempted assassination of right. Well, that was the Kavanaugh. Dobbs year? Right. So it was like, it was yeah, the
1: Dobbs year that he.
0: Yeah, he did another one two years ago, talking about financial disclosure and recusal. So I don't know. I, I feel like they've been maybe a little bit more, a little bit more targeted towards stuff that's been happening.
1: I do, not, do you know, Do you not follow this stuff? Dan AI has made you know huge, explosive changes this year. This I,
0: I understand, but it hasn't been a political issue for the United States courts in right. the Supreme Court, right? Right, that's true. It's fine, it's yeah. fine. But um, Lawyers are getting
1: sanctioned for using AI to write briefs, I'm sure. Yeah, but, but like no are. Supreme
0: Court advocates have so far. No, well, yeah, maybe they're getting away with it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I wonder what is the most use of AI in a Supreme Court brief? Do you think this year at least one law clerk used AI to write a pool memo and got away with it? Oh man, I'd like to say no. I mean, because I think that the, Clerks this year are unusually, I mean, from the last few years, they have to be post Dobbs, they have to be like unusually nervous about anything that would result in a leak or disclosure. And to use AI, you have to kind of like be in the cloud, right? And communicating with the cloud, and, you know, the AI could remember what you did. Uh, it's a little bit unclear. Uh, exactly how it works. That's one of the things Chief Justice Roberts's letter mentions: is the possibility of disclosure of confidential information. So I guess I'd like to believe none of them would have done that.
1: Yeah, and I guess that that's the good one would be. I mean, if you if you could train a large language model on the PUMO database, so it understood what PUMOs look like and what the yeah. patterns are, then it could probably write better uh, PUMOs than some um,
0: people who clerked my ear. Yeah, although to the extent that they depend on independent legal research, not obviously. That's true, right? That's true. Not every lock clerk was good at that. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have some some names in mind? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to say them, but maybe you believe that some clerks you're were were better than others.
1: That's not possible. All
0: clerks are equal. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I I got a little bit ahead of myself when I was getting really excited about the main topic of the day, but then I was like, you know, realized that maybe we're supposed to talk about other stuff. Give people a chance to click fast forward a couple times. Yeah. Two other quick things. Special counsel Jack Smith wanted the court to grant certiorari before judgment on the issue of President Trump's presidential immunity from prosecution. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of us thought that they would, right? Or at least, you know, they thought that there was a good chance that they would. What did you think?
1: I thought there was a good chance they would, but in retrospect, I don't understand how I could possibly have thought that. <laughs> Just to make sure I understand the posture, the, the case is in the district court the district court ruled that Trump doesn't have immunity, right? Yeah. And that Trump's appealing it to the DC circuit. And so then the request was to grant cert before judgment, the DC circuit, and just immediately have the Supreme Court decide it. Yeah, But the request is by Jack Smith who won below. Yeah. And outside of weird Camerata versus green qualified immunity stuff, the person who won below can't ask the Supreme Court to grant cert.
0: Yeah. So do you, do you think that there was no jurisdiction I don't know whether say there's
1: no jurisdiction or just that the, as a matter of the interpretation of the certiorari statute, you can't
0: ask the Supreme Court for certiorari if you won. So you think that they actually just couldn't have done it? Because I was wondering about that. It was a little weird.
1: I mean, I said, I wasn't really paying attention. Everybody was like, the court's I was going to grant this. And so I thought, okay, I guess they will. I mean, I've never heard of them granting cert before judgment in order to tell the prevailing party that they're not only right, but really right.
0: I don't know. I wonder whether there is... Good examples. I'm trying to think of the other cases where they did cert before judgment in the last, I don't know, long time. Um, one of the ones that always comes to mind is Booker, the sentencing yeah. case. The government lost, I think. That was United States versus Booker. Am I right about that?
1: I think it was United States versus Booker, but then FanFan. I, yeah, I guess
0: the... that wouldn't that wouldn't tell you because it still you would put the, uh, the petitioner's name first regardless, right? Right. I think it was United States versus FanFan as well. But that still wouldn't answer the question. Oh yeah, of who the Yeah. So in Booker, the government uh, lost on the constitutional issue uh, in the district court. So I guess it would surprise me if there wasn't some example because I feel like no matter what we talk about, when we're like this has never happened, yeah, someone writes in and is like no, this is this happened in you know last term <laughs> or yeah. something. I take it the reason,
1: I mean, the idea I guess would be that the special counsel is injured. By the stay in the proceedings that's necessitated by the appeal. And so therefore we should eliminate, redress the injury of the stay in the proceedings by just granting the case now and deciding it really fast. Yeah. But I don't think that works. I don't think your injury can come from a byproduct of the litigation
0: rather than the merits of the litigation. Yeah. Could be. I share your instinct that there's something weird about it and that it's definitely a problem uh, and that it's one that people didn't seem to be talking about quite as much as they should have been. This was pointed out in Trump's jurisdictional statement yeah. in the case. But it just seemed like the, the discourse was like, oh gosh, how can they not
1: take this, right? Right. And what the, what Trump said is, in rare instances, this court may grant a petition for review from, from a prevailing party, but that victor must suffer an ongoing traceable redressable injury from the otherwise favorable decision of the lower court. See Cameretta
0: and a couple other cases. What else to talk about? The court is going to hear another abortion case. This one's a little oh, bit more complicated.
1: Yes. Well, this is the one about Mtala, right? The emergency, the emergency room
0: statute that says emergency rooms have to treat, have to stabilize people. Yeah. So this is one not directly about the kind of Roe versus Wade type constitutional issue, Dobbs constitutional issue, but instead about you know whether. Federal law conflicts with the state law of Idaho, which bars abortion, you know, absent some, you know, very stringent exceptions. And we're going to see what happens with that. A good chance that the immunity thing, the Trump immunity thing still gets back to the court, right? And so this may be a kind of another extremely high profile, spicy, contentious term for the justices.
1: Yeah, I saw Steve Vladek, at least on his Substack, and maybe also on Twitter, suggest this might just be the biggest term ever, the biggest term in recent memory. Just the number of, you know, multiple gun cases, multiple abortion cases, multiple Trump cases, the number of sort of explosive
0: yeah. cases. Now, Haven't you felt excited? that way about like every term for the past like long time? Have felt that way about, you know, like I just feel like we've had big term, huge term after huge term.
1: Yeah, well, I that the the Dobbs-Bruin term, which also had West Virginia versus EPA and Kennedy versus Bremerton and other sort of like big cases, that, that one felt unusually big compared to even last term where, okay, they had a action and a few other things, but not as big a deal. Yeah. The term, you know, the article I wrote about the shadow docket was supposed to be the like forward for the Supreme Court issue for a, a secondary law journal, the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. And part of how I ended up right up the shadow docket was I looked at the cases and I was like, there's not any big cases this year. And the biggest case was Hobby Lobby, which was like not nothing, but it wasn't. And so I I realized it's a convention of the genre to say, this is the
0: biggest term and all these big things happen. But
1: the merits docket was pretty quiet. So let's let's look at the things people aren't paying attention
0: to. Turned out that was a good move on your part. Got you some sites. Yeah. But might get some more sites for this article we're going to talk about. I don't know. I was wondering about this. You know, is this... Uh, your article, The Sweep and Force of Section 3, co-authored with Michael Stokes Paulson, whether this will end up being a highly cited article or not. Yeah. I mean, certainly it, it depends in part on whether you know the Supreme Court, which is now granted cert, in this case coming out of Colorado, Colorado Supreme Court, uh, said that, President Trump is barred by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment from assuming the presidency and thus can't be on the ballot. If the Supreme Court agrees with that, I mean, that's going to be one of the biggest Supreme Court cases of all time. That's got to at least enter your kind of top 10 most significant Uh, cases right there if they do that. We
1: could talk it
0: through. I'm actually sure. Let's say yes. It's really, I mean, a big deal, right? It's potentially a big deal. (laughs) No, I'm saying if they disqualify Trump, that's uh, that's more than potentially a big deal. That is actually a big deal. Yes, I mean, well, they wouldn't be disqualifying Trump. The
1: Constitution disqualifies Trump. Okay. If they if they say right. if the state of Colorado but, is allowed to
0: yes, or not not just allowed. Like there, there's a way in which they decide it that just says he is not eligible for the presidency. Right.
1: Well, that yeah, that's why I was I was having a yeah. hawing a little bit. Yeah. So like this is a case about the primary ballot. One thing you could yeah. say is states are in charge of Article Two elections. States in fact don't have to have elections, and so sure, just just as Colorado could just unilaterally allocate all its electoral votes for Joe Biden, they can elect, you know allocate all their electoral votes for anybody but Trump if they want to. You could you could resolve the case that way. I'm not saying they will,
0: but you could. And, and so that by extension that would mean a state can impose whatever additional requirements it wants onto the presidency. Right. That would be the argument. Now, I know that's what they're going to say, but if they said that, I mean that would still be a big deal, but it wouldn't necessarily be the same. I mean historically either way it would be it would be important. But yeah, that's fair because in that universe maybe maybe that ends up meaning that Trump is only on the is not on the ballot in relatively blue states. Colorado's not the bluest state, but bluish But it also would mean that maybe they pull Biden off the ballot in Texas or other yeah. places.
1: So one other thing I also wondered about this uh, maybe this it's getting ahead of us is like Trump was impeached for some of the same conduct at the end of his term and then the Senate didn't have the votes to convict, in part because a lot of senators thought that you know you couldn't impeach him once January twentieth had happened. Yep. But imagine or, they had or, it. or said that, whether they thought it or not. Fair enough. Yeah. But if they had impeached him, one of the things they they could have presumably would have done is disqualify him from holding any future office under the United States. That's you know, the yeah. Clause says that. So then, had they done that, had they done that faster, he'd presumably be disqualified from running again. You know, I kind of wondered, like, imagine that had happened, and imagine Trump tried to run again anyway. Try to run even though he's disqualified. Would we think that the court decisions keeping him off the ballot, just like enforcing the impeachment clause, were like the biggest thing ever or anything like that? We might not. That might just seem natural to us.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe just because there would be greater consensus, you know, legal consensus on the fact that that...
1: Seth Barrett Tillman has written an article saying the president is not an office under the United States, and therefore the president can't be disqualified under the impeachment clause. I assume the same a
0: wave of people who believe that the president is not covered by section yeah. three, but, but also say that. Sure. But if there had been enough consensus in the Senate to do that, then presumably maybe obviously things could change between now and then, but there might be greater legal consensus that, that that was legitimate and possible. Yeah. It's hard to know. Or it might be that all those senators would have been primaried.
1: Yeah. It didn't take that many people. So it's just weird what what legal provisions we regard as kind of like intuitive and what legal provisions we regard as, you know, weird and radical. Yeah. Something I've reflected a lot about a lot as this litigation has gone on. Yeah. But... Okay, um, probably get ahead of us. Yeah. yeah
0: so I, I guess I got a little ahead of ourselves uh too. So maybe we should back up all the way to the beginning and you could tell us what this provision is, and then we could kind of walk through the arguments that you made about it in your article, and then, you know, talk a little bit about how the Congress Supreme Court, what they did, and then, you know, what the arguments that are being made at the Supreme Court are.
1: Okay. I'm going to try not to rehash too much of it because I'm still hoping to get the downloads to 200,000 for the end of this year. But Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. That is people who held some kind of office covered by the constitution who then engaged in insurrection or rebellion can't hold office again. Obviously at the time directed at an important class of people who did that during the civil war. And so Paulson and I, what was the cause
0: of the civil war? (laughs) (laughs) They asked Nikki Haley this the other day.
1: Yeah, we talked about it. I, I'm teaching a uh, class on the Constitution of the Civil War right now, so we talked about this on the first day. So it, here's what I love about this question. we One of the things we read is the cornerstone speech by Alexander Stevens, Vice President of the Confederacy, who says that the cornerstone of the Confederacy is slavery and the inferiority of the black race, and you know says the one problem with our country and our Constitution is that the people who found that it believed in equality, and we now know equality is false, and so we're going to Create a better, more scientific, you know, country. So, so like, at least probative evidence. Yeah, but here's the interesting thing: if you looked at what the North said, so uh, look at some, for example in the House, there was something called the Crittenden Resolution, uh, which passed the House 119 to two about what is the cause of the Civil War, and it said, "We are not fighting this war about slavery, and in fact, we will end the war as soon as the, we are fighting only about union." and not about slavery. And as soon as the South agrees to return to the fold, the war will end. We don't demand any changes. Lincoln gave, you know, has a famous quote about how if he could end the war and return the South uh, to the North without freeing any slaves, he'd be happy to do it. So at least when the war begins, the North would tell you it's not about slavery, and the South would tell you it's about slavery. Now, I feel like we've all flipped stories on that, and the sort of, it's the Confederate sympathizer types who tell you it's not really about slavery, and it's all the the rest of us. Yeah, of course it was about slavery.
0: But at least slavery was a but for cause of it, regardless of what might have happened to diffuse the controversy. Had things gone differently, right? Sure. I mean, Trump, Trump could have uh, prevented it, by the way. Did you see this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> How was he going to prevent it?
0: He didn't make clear, he but he said that uh, better, you know, negotiation. Uh-huh. So presumably, you know, what we call uh, the art of the deal could have avoided all that bloodshed.
1: You want me to give you a sympathetic reconstruction of that? Yeah. Well, another but for cause of secession is the election of Abraham Lincoln, right? The South decides once Lincoln is elected that the North cannot be trusted to keep to the various compromises they've been making. And so it's, you know, it's over. And so there's a sense in which if anybody other than Abraham Lincoln and certainly anybody who wasn't seen as particularly sympathetic to abolition were elected, the South might well not have chosen to secede. You know, I mean, they would have been confused with this Donald Trump guy and where he came from, what his deal was. But, it's conceivable that by dint of not being Abraham Lincoln, maybe Donald Trump would have taken things in a different direction. Not sure it worked out. I guess guess we'll never know. I hope not. (laughs) Barring some sort of weird constitutional law time travel thing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that might be the most sympathetic you're going to be to president Trump in this episode, but we'll find out. Okay. I derailed us again. I'm probably going to do that a couple more times, but let's keep going. Okay. The upshot of
1: the article we wrote is that section three, remains an enforceable part of the constitution with important consequences it is not just about the civil war so it's not only the insurrection or rebellion that was the civil war but future insurrection rebellions it is what we call self-executing meaning it's just establishes a qualification for office like the rule that barack obama can't run for more than two terms so the rule really be thirty-five. um it does not violate the due process clause, the bill of attainder clause or other constitutional provisions. And that the definition of insurrection and the definition of engage in are sufficiently sweeping, that they include the conduct of president Trump both on and around January 6th, 2021, and that he engaged in insurrection and therefore can't hold office.
0: Okay. So listeners might notice there's a lot of steps there. And to conclude that president Trump is ineligible, you have to kind of run the table on those right if section 3 it's it might not still be in force right maybe cuz it's was really just about the civil war or maybe because some things you, your article talks about this that congress did afterwards kind of made it all go away right, right. that's one argument if it's not self-executing and requires congress to do something to make someone ineligible you lose if it doesn't apply to the president and so forth. And then, you know, still we'd have the question, even if we got all the way through the legal issues, we'd have, you know, an issue that's sort of a, a factual application of a lot of facts, which is what right. does it mean for Trump in particular?
1: So that's more or less right. I will say one claim we make in the, in the paper that uh, got a lot of people very mad at us <laughs> was the claim that section three, to the extent of a conflict with the first amendment and free speech principles, section three prevails because it's the last in time. So far, all the courts to consider this case have concluded that that issue doesn't matter, that Trump's speech and conduct on January 6th isn't sufficiently protected by the First Amendment for it to matter. And they've disagreed with us about that point. So for instance, we don't necessarily have to win on that point. And self-executing is a little complicated because the context this case has come up in is in the context of state election law litigation. So there is some state statutory causes of action and the like. It's not not Mm -hmm. being brought up in a totally self-executing context. Congress hasn't acted, but the posture that gets us here, uh, which maybe we'll just just bring in, is a lawsuit in Colorado about whether or not Donald Trump could be on the ballot as a matter of Colorado election law, right? And the claim is Colorado election law, as other states do, limits the ballot to qualified people. We don't want 31-year-olds or foreign citizens or dogs on the ballot. And so if Donald Trump is disqualified, he shouldn't be on the ballot. The Trial judge held a, a five-day bench trial to determine whether or not the acts that took place on January 6th were an insurrection, and if so, whether or not Donald Trump participated in them, and so on. Concluded that January 6th was an insurrection, that Donald Trump engaged in it, but then at the last minute, the trial judge ruled in favor of Trump on the grounds that he was not covered by Section 3 because he was the president. And then it went to the Colorado Supreme Court, which ruled 4-3. to that the trial court had been right about all the facts and right about everything other than the fact that the president uh, is covered by section 3.
0: Yeah, and a very long to my eyes very thorough and very clear opinion. Yeah. I think it's very good. Were there any important ways in which the court's analysis, you know, kind of differed from yours or sort of went through a different route or is it did it seem like they were tracking your arguments? Pretty closely. Pretty closely. I think other than the free speech issue,
1: which I think is totally fine to put to one side, I found myself nodding a lot as I was reading through
0: it. And then three dissents in that case, a couple of them on state law stuff, and then kind of a, a lead dissent that's more about the constitutional issues. Is that is that right? Yes, that's right.
1: Two, two that are purely on state law issues and one that's sort of on its face, mostly the self-executing issue that states shouldn't be the one enforcing this. Congress should but with a kind of due process thing uh, thrown in that then in turn brings in some of the state law questions again. So it's a little little bit, it's got several different issues in it, but that's the only dissent that the Supreme Court in a way uh, will care about, assuming they're not going to review the Colorado Supreme Court's interpretation of state law.
0: So that happens. And then we have some uh, petitions filed at the court. There's two different petitions. One is by uh, the Colorado State Republicans, right? They file a petition. Attorney there is Jay Sekulow, who's kind of a conservative media personality, uh, radio and television talk show host, uh, and also a lawyer. He had one of the earlier Trump cases, didn't he? Yeah, (laughs) Trump has gone through a lot of lawyers, and but uh, he's not, you know, obviously not representing Trump uh, here right now. Yes, that petition is filed a little earlier. Yes, And then the court, but the court doesn't grant that. It doesn't deny it. That one is just sitting there now. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And instead uh, we have a case, a petition filed by Trump and uh, in a case that's now going to be called Trump versus Anderson. Yes. That one, I have a question about who the lawyer is there. That one, the counsel of record is a guy named David Warrington of the Dillon Law Group in Alexandria. Not a lawyer I was familiar with, not a law firm I was familiar with. They may have been involved in some other stuff but not one of the kind of famous Supreme Court advocates. But then there was a document filed in the other case, in the one filed by Sekulau. there was a document by Trump saying they're not going to file a response there for, you know, technically, you know, they're technically respondents in that case, doesn't matter. And then that was signed by Jonathan Mitchell, the kind of conservative mastermind (laughs) He's also now listed on the docket of the Trump case. Yeah. So the question is, you know, maybe he had a hand in writing the petition and just didn't make it onto the brief. Don't know. Maybe he's going to argue it now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He, right. I assume he's either been in the background all along
1: or has now decided to join. Now this is made to the court, but I, I assume he's going to take the, certainly if, if Trump is smart, he'll give Jonathan Mitchell a lot of control of the pen here.
0: Yeah. I did think that the petition, you know, didn't blow me away, but I thought it was a pretty solid petition in terms of craftsmanship through court advocacy. Yeah. well, so, you know.
1: And at the petition, one interesting thing at the sort of, at the nerdery, you know, the petition level is the difference. So the Republican petition, because one question is, you know, what, what questions presented do you ask, right? So the Republican petition asked three questions presented. One is the president subject to disqualification under section three. Two is section three self-executing. And then three, whether this violates the First Amendment rights of the political party, because this has taken place at the primary stage, and you could think that the primary has a right to send an insurrectionist to the polls if they want to. Maybe, maybe we could fight about it the general, but you know, if, the, if they want to be the insurrection party, maybe we can't stop them. Whereas Trump just posed one question presented. Did the Colorado Supreme Court err in ordering <laughs> President Trump excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot, which lets them bring in sort of any number of arguments they want to it doesn't it doesn't lock them into just one which given how many different arguments there are is probably a smart a smart move because all they have to do is is get the court to bite on one of them
0: yeah and there's some interesting kind of back and forth on the qp because in the respondents brief that's filed in the trump case the attorney's Jason Murray, who's a partner at a you know relatively small boutique uh, in Denver, former clerk for justices, then Judge Gorsuch and then Justice Sotomayor. Their approach in the in the, the brief in opposition is to say petitioner Donald Trump offers a single question presented, which wrongly conflates at least seven discrete legal and factual issues in his petition. Properly framed, the questions are, and then they list seven things, which are you know some of those sub issues that you and I were just. Talking about, I, I wasn't sure about this choice. I, it just seemed like, you know, clearly all these issues are subsumed under the more broad issue of did the Supreme Court err? Did did the Colorado Supreme Court err? I wasn't totally sure. You know, why do that? Yeah, I wasn't sure. Like, you know, first of all, I don't think that the I don't. I mean, you can you can say that you disagree with the matter of style or any number of other things, but I don't think that like. That QP didn't conflate or anything. It just said, did they err? And there's could be like 12 different reasons why it aired, or any number of possible right. reasons. And so I don't know what – I don't. I guess I, I don't totally understand what the strategy was here of showing that there's a bunch of different questions, maybe just like making it more complicated. Now, the – I guess I, I called it the briefing opposition. That's not quite right because they agreed the court should grant cert, but obviously want the court to grant cert on only some of the issues. Well,
1: and that's I, – I think the reason to do it is to at least make it e- – if the court ha- if the court wants to limit the questions presented, listing them out that way makes it a little easier for the court to do it. because they could then say, "Cert is granted, limited to questions one, two, and five In the response, yeah, brief. Whereas if you don't spell it out for them, and they're going to have to write the questions for them themselves, yeah, that's you know, so, yeah, yeah, that's fair. So uh, you offer this by doing that, you offer the court a chance to not yeah. just put everything together. It even and uh, if you saw this, there's this footnote in Trump's brief at, where you know where he says here are various reasons this is wrong, and then footnote four. Finally, there are many other grounds for reversal, as many scholars have pointed. And then just yeah. string sites, a bunch of newspaper articles. Yeah. Uh, Larry, Larry Lessig and Slate, Sam Moine in the New York Times, John Harrison and Cyberkosh in the Wall Street Journal, Kurt Lash on SSRN, Richard Epstein. So it's just yeah. like we incorporate by around. reference,
0: like the commentariat. And anything anybody's come up with, we're going to put on the table. Yeah. I'm not sure it, if that works to preserve an argument, but what do I know?
1: <laughs> it, it does if they want it to, Dan.
0: Oh, that's true. Anything does if they want it to. Okay. So what should we say about this? What should we say about the uh, arguments that are being made? Trump's petition, Mm -hmm. there's at least one interesting amicus brief we should talk about in a second, but we can get to that. But what struck you about uh, the petition, if anything? I guess let let me throw one out on the table, among many other things. There's the order of arguments, if that makes sense. Sure. So if you look at the table of contents for the petition, uh, first one is just about the CERT standards. And it says, part two, disputed questions of presidential qualifications are reserved for Congress. Three, section three is inapplicable. Then Trump did not engage in an insurrection. Then the Colorado Supreme Court violated the electors clause by flouting state law, basically. And then at the end, section three cannot be used to deny President Trump access to the ballot. Not necessarily clear that that, You had to go in that order? Do you think that they're trying to signal anything about the relative strength of the issues there?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. There is a way in which they are from the least in the weeds to the most, although you could, you know, like, it's like, you shouldn't get into this at all because it's for Congress. Okay, you can get into it, but it's a pure question of law, which is that this doesn't apply to the president all right, if you want to get into it, let's talk about what an insurrection yeah. is. All right, if you want to really get into it, let's talk about Colorado state law, which is something that yeah. outside of Moore versus Harper, maybe you don't even have jurisdiction to review. So so a little bit of that, but it's hard to know. And it's hard for me to know the right way to prioritize these arguments. You might think sometimes you know, the view is like with a normal client who the court has not heard of and doesn't have a preconceived view of, yeah. I feel like you often start by trying to paint your client in a good light. <laughs> so you might start by being like, obviously this is not an insurrection and my client is being railroaded and he's being falsely accused, you know, and then you might transition to your legal arguments.
0: Yeah. Here, I take it that didn't seem like it was necessarily the way to go. What else to say about it? I want to get into some kind of prediction game in a minute, but you know, let's, let's try to uh, flesh out the legal issues. And there's an amicus brief we could talk about, but is there more at this point, you know, having confronted about these legal issues. Is there stuff out there, arguments being made that that you all hadn't fully anticipated or stuff that's, that's sort of getting more airtime than you would have expected? Well, those are two different questions.
1: On the not anticipated, I mean, I hate to sound aloof and out of touch, but not really. Like, well, I've actually just been struck over and over again by how many of the arguments are arguments that we anticipated and have an answer to. And it maybe doesn't persuade people, but uh, in general, I've, I've been struck by that. When we read our article, Kurt Lash, had not yet written his sort of piece on SSRN, which is a sort of walk through, a detailed walk through the legislative history of Section Three. There were some legislative histories of Section Three done by, uh, especially Mark Graber, uh, who has sort of a book on this whole thing, um, and Gerard McLeayoka had done a bunch of work on it. Um, and we, of course, you know, looked at it ourselves. But but that's the one sort of he, he introduces several new claims when Section Three was drafted that, I mean, mm-hmm. frankly, I don't think are accurate, but that you know, I hadn't fully anticipated that somebody was going to put those together exactly that way.
0: And have those translated into heavy arguments in the briefing? So one of the
1: claims he makes is that there was an early draft of Section 3 that included the president, and then it was taken out. And in the paper, he's actually, I think, pretty careful not to claim that it was on purpose, or even that we know why it was taken out. But somehow it has joined the stream with the argument that the president is not covered by Section 3, so that some people, like Steve Calabresi, now claim congress deliberately took the president out of section three which is it's like even just descriptively not true what happened is one guy had a proposal a proposed statute that would have disqualified some people including the you know from the presidency and then later there wrote a constitutional amendment which you could imagine is kind of based off of the earlier statute and is a little different anyway so that so it's joined stream a little bit with the like the president is not an officer thing that argument i think is the one that when I mean, we As you know, I have been telling people for many years not to underestimate Seth Barrett Tillman, who's one of the sort of principal scholarly architects of this argument. And we devote, I don't know, 10 pages of our article to why we think the president is covered by section three, notwithstanding uh, Tillman's work and notwithstanding even the parts of it I agree with. But even so, I think it's been just uh, as a meme, interesting to watch that argument spread. I think that's the argument that some people thought, this is never going anywhere. That's ridiculous. Of course, the president's an officer, but it's definitely become one of the front runners.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, it, it always it strikes me as one of the kind of less normatively attractive arguments. Yeah. In, in the sense that, like, gosh, that would be dumb, yeah. right? If they had this provision that, you know, disqualifies Jefferson Davis from being a senator, but not from being president. yeah. Here's the
1: thing, I think, is that if you don't understand the argument very much, if you understand it only on a high level, it feels like it matches this version of, look, this is a national presidential election. Surely the people should decide this. Like yeah. Everything else, even you know, should Josh Hawley stay a senator, which I think he's not covered, everything else sort of feels like, okay, that's a real question. I can imagine the courts deciding it, but the presidency is just such a big deal like it sort of feels like it merges with that argument a little bit it it ends up the argument is very technical so the argument is that the president is an officer because the constitution calls him an officer and most people concede he's an officer under the united states which means he can be disqualified under the impeachment clause which means jefferson davis couldn't have been president but the argument is not an officer of the united states because the constitution uses different phrases for the question of like who's taken an oath versus what thing you can hold in the future. So when you start focusing on it, it just starts to feel really weird. But then here's the kind of amazing thing about this argument. If you want to rule against the Colorado Supreme Court, rule in favor of President Trump, and you want to take this issue totally off the table for the 2024 election, you don't want to risk Congress getting involved and Congress deciding on January 6th, 2025, not to count the electoral votes for Trump or anything like that. So you want to say, like, as a matter of law, Trump's not disqualified. And you don't want to have to get into the record and like try to argue about the facts and like what the standard of review is, then this is the perfect argument. It's the argument that the rules for Trump doesn't reserve it to Congress and doesn't depend on, you know, what exactly happened or what he was thinking. And then the other amazing thing about this argument is it literally only applies to Donald Trump. So the argument is that somebody who's taken the oath of office as president is not covered because technically that's not the oath of office taken by all other officers. And every other president in American history took at least one other oath of office because they held some government position before becoming president. Like so Barack Obama would still be covered because he took the senatorial oath. Joe Biden, George Bush took the gubernatorial oath. Literally the only president in American history who's ever taken the presidential oath of office without having taken any other oath of office is Donald J. Trump. So it's a legal argument that Trump wins and has (laughs) literally no implications for
0: any other human being who has ever lived,
1: which is in that sense
0: almost hilariously beautiful. Huh. Do you think should we wait to make predictions until we've gotten everything else on the table? I'm so I'm so eager to talk about that, but well, yeah, because and there's another out right that you and I talked about a little bit before the show that might also be attractive. This uh, features in a an amicus brief by Senator Daines and on, on behalf of Senator Daines and the National Republican Senatorial Committee that was filed by inestimable team at jones day that's a positive adjective right that means like they're really good right they're really good and that i think is another kind of out and as i understand the argument is that section three makes people you know who have engaged in insurrection taken an oath and so forth ineligible to be president or to be whatever Mm -hmm. but not to run for that office Mm-hmm. And so the Congress can always fix it. Uh, they can remove the disability, and so you know it doesn't make any sense you're adding this extra qualification requirement to say, you know, you can't run, and that's in- improper. That also strikes me as a kind of non crazy off ramp. Although I guess it would mean that the Supreme Court would then have to like decide the question on January 21st if Trump is reelected.
1: Well, right. So that's so we can talk the realist version and the, and the merits. So this argument is a kick the can down the road argument. And there are a lot of arguments in the case that kick the can on the road somewhere saying it's up to Congress to decide kicks the can on the road also yeah. to January 6th and the electoral count. So, so one question is just, will that will it be attractive to the court to, to kick the can down the road or toss the hot potato to Congress or whatever metaphor you want? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think if they do that, I think there's a real chance that on january 6th 2025 i mean it'll depend a lot on the composition of the house which will be determined by the 2024 election but there's a real chance that this will derail the electoral count and <laughs> a sort of weird reverse john eastman scenario so just as a descriptive matter that's it has that risk on the merits i think this is really just a fancy ripeness argument it's true that the the constitution refers to holding office not running for office and so one question is if you can't hold an office, does the state have to put you on the ballot anyway? Like they have to let you run into the brick wall when you you know can't get through it? And there's a opinion everybody loves to cite uh, by then Judge Gorsuch from the Tenth Circuit about a somebody who's not a natural born citizen who wanted to be on the the ballot for president. It says no, the state does not have to put unqualified people
0: on the ballot. Yeah, and I went I went and read this excited to see what he said, and it's unfortunately it's like a paragraph long. It's a paragraph
1: long unpublished opinion. They thought it was so obvious that only needed a paragraph analysis. And so you might think section three is kind of the same. The argument is section three is different because it has this special amnesty provision that Congress can by a two thirds vote remove the disability if they want to. So you might say, like, we don't really know if you're disqualified until until the final moment.
0: It's weird, though, because Congress also, by two-thirds vote, can vote to amend the Constitution. And yes, it still would have to be ratified by the states, but right. you could say, like, well, you know, maybe if Arnold Schwarzenegger gets elected, Congress will pass a constitutional amendment and a bunch of states right. will ratify it.
1: Right. It's always the case that things could change. Right yeah. now, Trump is disqualified, and right now, Arnold Schwarzenegger is disqualified. And which is more likely passing a constitutional amendment to let Arnold run or passing an amnesty statute to let Arnold run. I'm genuinely unsure. Yeah, And I think that's normally what ripeness doctrine is for, is for that kind of prudential question that asks like, well, is there some reason we should wait? Is there some you know reason we should decide it now? So I think ultimately it boils down to that kind of a, a ripeness argument, which I'm not sure whether the Colorado courts even have to follow federal ripeness principles exactly.
0: But Oh, well, that's interesting, but it's not strictly a ripeness argument, right? I mean, they're saying it's like a U.S. term limits versus Thornton argument, right? right. They're, they're
1: describing it in that way, as saying the state is adding to the qualifications by saying you have to not only be disqualified as of January 20th, 2021, but effectively saying you have to not be disqualified as of you know January 6th, 2024. They're adding a year in which you have to not be disqualified. But you are disqualified now. So which way to think about it depends yeah. on what you think of, I mean, whether you take the disqualification seriously or not, I think, but, yeah. but it's a very well done brief and yeah, it's not at all inconceivable that if, if the court is looking for an out that kicks the can down the road, you know, this is an option.
0: Okay. Does that lead us into the kind of predictology? Sure. Okay. So you go first. <laughs> first, I'm going to kind of direct people a place that we've directed them before, which is Adam Unikowski's sub a uh, highly successful Supreme Court litigator at General Block, Adam Mutakowski, former law school colleague of mine on the Harvard Law Review, he wrote a piece uh, a couple months ago before Colorado a Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. where he said, You know, everybody thinks it would be crazy, but I actually think there's a 10% chance the Supreme Court would rule for Trump. I said, The Supreme Court would rule that Trump is ineligible. And, you know, he goes through and he's like, look, here's this issue. Here's why that, you know, Trump would have a tough argument here. The court would have a tough time ruling for him. And then, so he has a new post updating um, that to 20%. And I think that if you look at it, like now that the court has granted cert, like, you know, if you have to like rerun the numbers a little bit, so maybe it's 22% or something, but he goes through it and, you know, makes some arguments as to why, you know, particular steps in the analysis would be pretty unappealing for them, right? Like, I think it's going to be very hard. The court is not going to go like through all the steps and then say, yeah, it's self-executing, applies to the president, it's ripe, whatever. Uh, but we're going to go through his tweets one by one and say like, this doesn't quite get over the line to insurrection. Like, I, I don't believe they're going to do that. That strikes me as, as probably the hardest and most you know politically unpleasant and any number of other things. Like, things that they wouldn't want to do. They'd have to be reviewing factual findings, you know, all, all sorts of reasons. Does that make sense? It does. It makes. I mean, it makes sense to me, but it- I've always thought that that was one of the places where your argument was not necessarily on the strongest ground. Not, I'm not saying you're right or wrong, but I just thought, you know, that application of the, the law there, it's, you know, like he didn't, we don't have a tweet or him saying like, go in with weapons and- kill everybody. Right. right? And so, you know, it's, it's very fact specific. Some, some of the stuff in the Colorado Supreme court decision, you know, they rely on this, you know, sociology professor who says, Oh, these are basically says, these are like insincere kind of coded messages to his supporters. There's stuff like that you can do, but it just, it still strikes me as even if you really want to reverse, like maybe you try to figure out a way you can get off the train before getting to that point, having to go tweet by tweet,
1: I see that. I do wonder, how do you think Donald Trump would react if the Supreme Court issued a ruling saying the election was not stolen, January 6th was an insurrection, but Donald Trump did not sufficiently engage in the insurrection to be covered? Had he engaged, he'd be disqualified, but he, he, he wasn't sufficiently a part of January 6th. I mean, that'd be a victory for him. But I sort of wonder, would he respond by saying, you know, no, no, I, I had their backs. I was, I was part of them.
0: Or would he, would he take the W? I think he would. My guess is the latter, but you know he might still find some grievance. But I mean, I think that you know, the bottom line would be what matters there, right? right. He's yeah. eligible for the presidency.
1: Yeah, just I, I mean, it also the other problem with reversing on that kind of ground is that Trump had the opportunity to put forward a lot of evidence he didn't avail himself of in trial court. You know, most obviously, he could have taken the stand. He could have taken the stand, taken the oath, and credibly testified that this is not what he wanted to happen. And that when he learned that people were engaging in an insurrection, he was horrified and wanted nothing to do with it and tried to stop it and was upset by it and all that stuff. And I think had he, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene did this uh, in Georgia when she was challenged and convinced the hearing officer that she was not part of the insurrection. And I think had Trump done that, you know, he'd be on much stronger ground on that. Yeah. Well, who knows? Like, (laughs) Who knows what his testimony would have been like?
0: Okay. So uh, I guess my instinct is it's not zero. The Supreme Court is always capable of surprising us. And I think that under the right conditions, you could imagine there being the three liberal justices willing to go along or excited to go along or whatever. I don't necessarily think we're going to see a 6 3 split. I'm not sure if Justice Kagan is, if there aren't some Republican appointed votes, some conservative votes to rule him ineligible. I'm not sure she's going to be willing to go out on a limb uh, rather than kind of keeping her powder dry. But I think if a couple of the conservatives are like, yes, you know, I think he's ineligible, probably you get the other three votes pretty clearly. And the question is, are there two conservatives who would want to do that? Gosh, I don't know. Hard for me to believe this is uh, Alito and Thomas would do that, right? Very, very hard for me to believe.
1: Just as Thomas dissented in U.S. term limits, shouldn't he believe that Colorado can just do whatever they want?
0: Yeah, I guess that would be a kind of a narrower ground of decision, right? Yeah. I'm not going to get into all the Section 3 stuff, but Colorado can put whatever qualifications it wants, but would certainly not be saying, I I believe President Trump is disqualified from the presidency. Fair enough. I mean, you convince me. I mean, convince me otherwise, if, if you want, but that strikes me as unlikely.
1: Well, I, this, I, mean, this thing I find hard about all
0: these. You just think your originalist al- analysis is so good. I get that when people hear
1: these arguments, they don't like them. And they don't want to like them, and they don't want to believe them. <laughs> that has been my reaction to taking them around. I also think that when people sit with the arguments for a while, they have a hard time coming up with the reason that they want to reject them, that they are willing to put their name on. Kind of think of it as—I mean, this is where we started—is like, what is the alternative? There are a set of arguments that aren't great that involve kicking the can down the road to Congress and praying that. The electoral count goes better on January 6, 2025 than January 6, 2021. And then your other options are to dig into Trump's tweets or to say that the president is not an officer of the United States, even if he's an officer under the United States and an officer near the United States. And, and those don't seem that appealing either. Yeah, To make up some new definition of insurrection on the Vola conspiracy, Steve Calabresi has announced that an insurrection or rebellion has to be basically civil war level to count. I'm clear why that would be true. Uh, of course, the Civil War didn't start out at Civil War level either. <laughs> so that I, that's sort of where I got stuck, is is on the, if you even if you assume motivated reasoning, I just don't quite know how they're going to get there. One of my colleagues said, I, I don't know if this is a prediction, but one of my colleagues just, just said to me on, earlier today, the best result for the country would be for it to be 6-3 with all the Republicans voting against Trump and all of the Democrats voting in favor of Trump. <laughs> because the Republican judges... Our formalists, our principled formalists who don't believe about consequences and the liberals all care about the consequences, even if the formal legal materials go against them. And so that's what I think should happen. That would
0: be very interesting. Maybe that's right, that that would be the best, but that strikes me as uh, extremely unlikely. He, he offered me 101 odds. I would put five bucks on that. Make really? $500. You're not going to make $500. Well, I mean, some chance. I mean, yeah. <laughs> some chance, I, but it's I not agree. 100. Yeah. i take a million to one. Okay. Fair enough. I think it's sub 20%. You think Adam, Adonikowski is too generous. I, I think so just because not because I think anything he says about the law is wrong. Um, but just, you know, go back to the fundamentals, which is first of all, this would be huge deal. It would put the court, I mean, the court is already in the cross It would be the court deciding a really, really consequential thing, taking something out of the hands of the voters. And it would make the court, you know, really an intense focus of this presidential election. That said, you know, I was talking to somebody and they sort of made the case to me, look, at least some of these guys would be delighted to get rid of Trump. And Trump is disqualified and then Nikki Haley can be president, right? She probably has a better chance yeah. for the general election. So. Exactly right. That if you're a Republican elite, a lot of those folks don't love Trump. They like him to the extent that they think he can help them win national elections. But all the evidence so far is that he is hurting them in national elections post-2020. And I think if you're kind of a a prestigious DC, inside-the-beltway Republican, you're probably happier with a Haley presidency or a DeSantis presidency, something like that. You're certainly happier with a candidate who gives you a better chance of winning. And just – and again, we're not – I'm not saying these are necessarily the considerations that the justices are bringing to bear. But it does – make this a tiny bit more complicated than the just like here's the outcome liberals want here's the outcome republicans want and that could help a little bit it's not handing the presidency to biden right like it's not doing this on the eve of the election in some way that that makes it clear that biden's going to win right Um, therefore it's not disenfranchising millions of voters right i mean everybody can
1: still vote for
0: almost anybody else yeah i mean it's i mean disenfranchising them vis-a-vis their preferred candidate Right, for whom there you know are a bunch of Republican primary voters who want Trump more than anybody else, right, but it's saying them they can sell their second best candidate, and then they might
1: well actually be more likely to get their second best candidate than their first best candidate, so on net they actually might be you might be enfranchising them yeah. against their will <laughs> right. they, they would like to throw their yeah. vote away, but yeah.
0: we'll stop them. The question is you know if Trump is going to win, you know, it goes back to this question of like what ground is he going to win on, yeah. And we talked about this a little bit, but maybe I can I just ask you more clearly, if your view loses, does it lose definitively or do they kick the can down the road? My guess is they don't want to kick the can down the road.
1: I agree about that. If you judge by the commentariat, it seems like it's the president is not an office of the United States. I think they've got they've got Kurt Lash now, they've got Blackman and Tillman, they've got Michael Mu they've got Steve Calabrese, they might have gotten to Richard Epstein. I think there are others. So, trying to be objective about this, I guess that's the play people are running with. As much as I try to discharge my duties of charitably reconstructing other people's arguments, I have a really hard time drafting the Supreme Court opinion that says that the president is an officer and an officer under the United States, but not an officer of the United States. And that's what this all turns on. Yeah. I have a really hard time imagining the justices doing that. Maybe if they don't read it, like maybe if they write it and then kind of... <laughs> don't look at it. Maybe yeah. they can do it. I'll probably look foolish when they all succumb to the same meme that has taken on Steve Calabrese and, and other smart people. So
0: but that is your, if you're going to lose, that's that. I guess. Where do you peg? And I know that obviously you have a lot, you care about the issue, having written about it, and you want the Supreme Court to agree with you on the legal issues. But if I said, where would you put money? Yeah. Putting aside whatever ego, personal stake you have in it, where would you put it? I oh, Look, it's hard to put that aside.
1: Again, I guess if I'm objective, I have to assume that you and Adam Minkowski know the odds better than I do. But I guess this is, again, where I, I say with it. It sort of depends on also maybe on how the litigation unfolds. Maybe we can check in about that. Because I feel like there's this interesting problem about the timing of the case, which is the longer it takes, if you, if you wanted to disqualify, if you wanted to say that Trump was disqualified, you know, you should do it yesterday because the primary season is unfolding and, you know, the more time people have to, to pick among the eligible candidates, the better. And so the longer you let this go on, the harder it is to unwind. Right. But I also think it takes you a while to think about this issue to really understand the problem. So, on the one hand, if the court resolved, had to resolve the case tomorrow, that might make it hard for them to rule against Trump
0: because they hadn't yet thought through. Yeah. But if we gave them a year, it would now be kind of late. Yeah. I mean, if they kick it down the road, I mean, that does at least give them some meaningful chance that they don't ever have to decide it. Yes. If Trump loses.
1: Well, sure, or if if Trump wins, but the the House election turns out such that they're deadlocked on, or the Republicans win enough votes in the House and the Senate that they can control the electoral count to make
0: sure that... But maybe nobody has standing, but I mean, wouldn't there still be a... I think we can just stipulate there's not going to be enough votes to remove the disability, right? Right. It depends on the -the kick-the-can rationale. If they say
1: something like only Congress gets to decide. Yeah, Which comes in a political question flavor and a non-self-executing flavor. Yeah. Or if they say some version of the Jones Day argument, which again might, might boil down to only Congress can decide, then they might be rolling the dice
0: on what happens on January 6th. Yeah. Now, if that's the case, that would that be a presidency-specific argument?
1: Well, if you say it's always non-self-executing, so only Congress can ever enforce Section 3,
0: that would apply to everything.
1: If you say, well, at least in the case of the presidency, you know, that's too big for any one state. I remember section three applies also to like the office of county commissioner in New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was wondering about
0: that. That was my next question, which is clearly Congress. I mean, does Congress really have a role in deciding like who can be a state, you know, that's what councilman or something,
1: the leading case on non-execution Griffin's case. That's what it says. The issue there is a Virginia County judge. Yeah who was in the confederacy and who kept his office afterwards. And Sam and P chase says, well, until Congress does something about this County judge, uh, nothing we can do about it. Now that's not, that was not the practice. Otherwise, like other States did disqualify state officials and, you know, mostly people, uh, even executive officials did that. But if you took that argument really seriously, it would say, you know, Congress has to legislate for the dog catcher
0: of yeah. Denver, which seems implausible. Right. This is, I mean, this is the problem. Okay. Well, we're going to find out quite soon. So the court has this on a super expedited schedule. That's going to be, you know, a lot of fun for the lawyers. And the argument is going to be February 8th. So a month from today. Yeah. Uh, opening brief is due the 18th. Uh, respondent's brief is due the 31st of January. Mm-hmm. And then reply brief is due five days after that, February 5th. Mm-hmm. and then you know given how much they're expecting this presumably they're gonna want to get the decision out like this i, I imagine they're not going to want to get this out as a last day in june decision maybe it won't that'll be unavoidable
1: yeah i assume they're going to want to issue it before super tuesday i mean again i guess if they know they're going to roll in favor of trump and he's going to be on the ballot everywhere and they're just going to say oh, okay that was fine then i guess they could take their time although well, i worry there's going to be a a sort of night before the exam is due effect uh, where they're like, well, we're going to rule for Trump. We could take our time and come up with the best reason why. And then at some point they're all standing around going, you know, wait a minute. What was the right reason? I mean, this is, this is an unfair comparison, but you know yeah. that the, the case of ex parte Kieran, then about the execution mm-hmm. of
0: the Nazi saboteurs during World War Two. Yeah. Where the, um, I mean, the, the, president roosevelt had you know according to some sources had sort of signaled to the court he was going to carry out the execution no matter what
1: yeah and, and then they said fine it's fine we'll, we'll yeah. we, you know they ruled that opinion that it yeah. was fine and then and then i think people uncovered this like you know when it came to the drafting later some of them had
0: regrets yeah <laughs>
1: like it's not obvious this is the right the right side but too yeah, late right. now
0: all right anything else you want to say about this this, this is your moment You have not, you have not been, you know, interestingly, you have not been all over the media with this. You've kind of let your article speak for itself.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I've, I've appeared on, I've been, I've been been appearing on Akilah
0: Mars podcast a lot. Yeah. But you, Uh, you haven't done, you know, Fox news, MSNBC. No, no, I haven't done those things.
1: I'm sort of leaning against filing the amicus brief.
0: I guess I'm curious, like what you would say in that, that you haven't said in your article there are arguments that are specific to this precise procedural posture that that didn't come up as, in your argument article which is a more general set of claims right
1: i mean look yeah we could get into the the details of colorado law or the you know based on the factual findings and, and things like yeah. that
0: i guess but, we, we didn't really talk about uh, in the proceeding we didn't really talk about the argument about is colorado law like did the court like so radically misinterpret colorado law as to make it a federal constitutional issue sure
1: I think the argument for that is fairly weak. That um, was my
0: instinct. I, I didn't get deep into the statutory structure, but it struck me as as relatively, you know, not so clear as to get over that threshold. Right. That's that's my impression as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing is I feel like I feel like we laid it out there, and people have to dig into it and and you know, have to find the truth on their own. And my writing another twelve thousand words repeating what we already said. Doesn't
0: yeah doesn't help either. People are going to work through it or they're not, and there's
1: only so much you can do about it. Well,
0: uh, we will see. Perhaps sooner rather than later. I'm already anticipating the possibility that I'll have to you know substitute in a day of reading in my con law class. Haven't decided what what would get cut, but I do think if the court you know decides this case, probably that students are going to talk about it. Uh, certainly, certainly if they say he's disqualified, uh, I would feel some obligation to teach it. So let's see.
1: Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, we'll find out also i mean this is just a case where I, we don't even know really what the briefs are going to focus on or or who the Amiki are going to be or, or you know so much so of course next month the case may also hopefully focus a little bit
0: all right anything else are we, are we good there yeah okay lead us out thanks very much for listening thanks to the constitutional law institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors Please uh, rate and review on the Apple Podcast Store or anywhere else you get the episodes. Check out our website, DividedArgument.com. We put transcripts up relatively soon after the episodes. Store.DividedArgument.com for merchandise. Send us an email, pod at DividedArgument.com, or leave us a voicemail, preferably in song form, 314-649-3790. And if there's a long gap between this and our next episode, it's because the Colorado Supreme Court has declared we are ineligible to record podcast episodes. So Will, I uh, thought we'd sneak in an after show. I'm not sure how many people keep listening after the closeout music or saw that there's a little bit of time left, but a little bit of a, a fun thing for everybody. We got a submission from Joel Fulton, uh, who was the, <laughs> the famed uh, submitter of, of the first song.
1: scholar uh, trolling.
0: Yes, uh, Unpersuasive Scholar Trolling. Uh, I don't know if that's actually the name of the song. It's the name of the episode in which the song appears. But uh, he doesn't have a new song as such, but he, he made an uh, alternative theme uh, music for us, which I think we're not going to adopt. We like our current thing. We've kind of got a brand, but thought we would play it for you all. Might enjoy it. So check that out our music is a little mysterious it's exciting you know when i had the music commission actually i sent the guys some like true crime podcasts. And i was like i listen to a lot of these give me something in this universe who killed democracy article 2 section 1 provides that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the united states it says that the executive power, not some executive power, shall be vested in a president of the United States, not a president of the United States and others.
1: Well, this mantra I, I uh, use a lot, you know, putting not your faith in princes. The more you become tempted to really believe in the justices, the more you're setting yourself up for disappointment.
0: The judicial shall never exercise the legislative and executive powers, or either of them. I guess what I mean to say is, maybe this really incriminates the justices. Does this kill your article? There's nothing right. makes my article stand. Ludwig Wittgenstein, he quotes the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. I've accused you of being kind of like a tool in the hands of right-wing legal movement machine. We should do a supercut at some point,
1: collecting them all. Nobody ever tries to sort of crown the other side president just because the Electoral College is really, really stupid. You could civilly say there is no reasonable debate to be had whether slavery was a good thing. That is not a legitimate topic for debate. I'm not going to participate in the topic about the debate but without being uncivil about it. That's at least like a facially plausible separability argument. Well, so a lot of, lot of people is think it's said,
0: facially implausible, but we'll get to that.
1: Oh, that's cool, man. Unscheduled, unpredictable. I want that to be my motto in life.